And we, matter of fact, we made t-shirts, and uh, Robbie had them designed. They had, a, they had a wash basin, had a pitcher, a basin, and a towel as, as a reminder that we are to be as our Lord Jesus was and be willing to uh, wash one another's feet. You have a handout. I'll give you all the answers in just a second. But before I read John chapter 12, I want to read some verses in 12 and kind of set the context again. I'm looking at, not the fill in the blank, I'm looking at our theme. This year our theme, we always, is, is we're using, uh, you know, walking in the light. And uh, I did this handout when we first started several months ago, and I want you to notice, I'm not going to read the who, who loved the Lord. I want you to look at but are. Here are the things I want you to think about. Um, who we are to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. A little prayer says, Dear Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit and with the truth of your inerrant word, bring to maturity the believers at Redland Baptist Church. You know, our, our thing, living in the light of eternity, you know, living in the light, Christ is that light. It's an eternal relationship. That's why he says, and you believe in me has eternal life. It's an eternal relationship. So you and I are living in the light of eternity, which is Christ. There are certain things we refuse to do. And then he says, we're ablaze for Christ and the gathering of his saints. That means we are ablaze for Christ and we love the gathering of the saints. Filled with the Holy Spirit and walking worthy of Christ. And these are true if you're living in the light of eternity. Constant in prayer and fearless about the gospel. Saved by grace alone and living by faith and not by sight. Willing to unmask error and reject false doctrine. Addicted, this is one of my favorite ones. Addicted to righteousness and you pursue self-denial. Passionate about reaching the unsaved. And serious about the Lord's day and life in the church. Those are some attributes of those who live in the light. We'll look at the answers in just a second to the handout. But flip back in John chapter John chapter 12. I want to show you a couple of things that are just so interesting to me. John chapter 12, it's six days before the Passover, I'm in verse 1. We looked at some of these verses, but I'm going to look at some other ones. Set the context. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, we're not sure how long it was, a few days, few weeks. So they hosted a dinner in honor of Christ. And, you know, of course, Lazarus was there and they celebrated. I'm down at verse 9. Because I want you to see it's, it. Because the verse 1 says six days before the Passover. Okay, so this is, this is the week leading up to Passover. Okay, Jesus is the Passover lamb, so he'll be on the cross on Passover. Uh, on Friday is when he's crucified. <clears throat> Put in the grave before sundown on Friday. Stays in the grave part of Friday, <clears throat> Saturday, and part of Sunday as we know it. And in their minds, part of a day was a day, so we say it was three days in the grave. 
But this is, this is the last week of Christ's earthly life before the cross. Now, I want you to think about the So people are coming to Jerusalem, okay? But there's two separate groups of people that make, by the way, that make the triumphal entry interesting when Jesus enters the city. But look at verse 9. <clears throat> when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also on account of Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. Of course, we know... And it's, but look at who it is. The large crowd of the Jews. And again, this is why you study the Bible. Okay? This is why you... It's, I was telling the men this morning, it's more than a devotional. It's good to read a little Bible verse and read a little devotional. But folks, that's not Bible study. Bible study is studying every word, knowing the context... Well, this part, there's a massive crowd in Jerusalem. But this crowd is the crowd of the Jews. So, more than likely, these are some of the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, from the city, which is two miles away from Bethany. They heard Jesus was there. Uh, you know, obviously, when a man's been raised from the dead, there's buzz, you know. So, they heard that Jesus was back in Bethany. So, all these Jewish people from the city... Went out. So the Bible says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came out to see him. Now, in verse 12, look at your Bible, it's still in chapter 12, at verse 12, the next day, now this is after the meal, okay? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is leading up to triumphal entry. So, so not the triumphal entry, but so you have the crowd of Jews, and then you have this crowd that are there because they've been traveling to Jerusalem. Because this is a required feast. Now let me tell you how many people were in Jerusalem. Um, Josephus, Jewish historian, records... Uh, in one specific Passover, he records or, or notes, he wasn't there, uh, we know of, but, but he records how many sheep had been, had been slain at a certain Passover. And one of those, I wrote the number down, now think about this, one particular Passover, I don't know what the date was, but Josephus wrote down that they recorded, whomever it was, 256,000 lambs were slain at a particular Passover. Let me say it again. This is why the Kidron, the, the Kidron Valley and the creek, there's a creek in the Kidron, and today it's dry, it's a dry bed, but the, the blood would leave uh, Temple Mount and it would roll down the hills and the creek would turn red from the blood, from the sacrifices. Anyway, 256,000 lambs were slain on a particular Passover. Okay? I don't know if it's when Jesus was alive. I don't know if it was 50 years before. I don't know when it was. But 256,000 lambs had been slain at Passover. So if you do your math, let's say, and, and you know from going and reading the original Passover, a household would, would choose the lamb. You know, they'd be under a house. Okay, That household may have, you know, eight children and may have four or five workers or servants or slaves and they would all, uh, you know, 
that would be their lamb of sacrifice, okay? So if there's five per lamb, that's 1.3 million people. If there's ten, it's two and a half million people in Jerusalem. Now, you know, I'm going back there next year, next November, not this year, but next year. And some of you are going with me, but Jerusalem is not a massively large city. So there are people everywhere, okay? So this encounter, and look, look what Jesus quotes in the Old Testament verse. Lord, he says, uh, fear not, or John does, I'm, I'm in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and they went to meet him. This isn't, this isn't the Jews, this is this massive crowd that's been on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And this is why. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I talked about what a marvelous miracle that was. But that's a quote from Zechariah 9.9. Now, let's go a little bit further in... Um, Go to verse 20. I'm still in chapter 12, kind of setting the, 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 the tone here. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I read part of this last week. So, these came to Philip, who, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and they asked him, uh, Sir, we, we wish to see Jesus. So, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus that you know, these Greeks wanted to see him. Now, it never tells us if Jesus did see him, but I want you to see what, what Jesus is teaching us about the significance of this event. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we did it last week, but there's three or four different verses that leads to about him being glorified. He says here, the hour... In the next chapter, he's going to say the time is here. It's not just the hour, it's the time for him to be glorified. And, and that, look what he, how he's going to describe how he's glorifying, how he's going to be glorified. He, he says, he tells this little parable, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. Now, who's he talking about? Him, himself. He's talking about what's fixing to happen. His death, is going to produce fruit. But listen, His death is not just going to produce fruit for just the Jews, is it? His death, His seed, His death, life, death, burial, and resurrection is going to be a seed, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. Okay? So He says, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that reminds me of what he's going to say in John 15 about bearing fruit. But he, and he's talking about himself. He's going to bear much fruit by dying. And then he says, whoever, now he's talking about us, who, believers. Whoever loses his life, um, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he's saying that, that we need to die. That it, it, if you want to bear the fruit of Christ's likeness, you die to self. 
Christ bore fruit worldwide by going to the cross. And this is a prophetic thing. That's why the significance of the Greeks came. Because the whole world is in darkness. It still is in darkness. Uh, Israel failed and Jesus came to fix that. And now folks can meet the God of heaven through His Son, through the gospel. And it's worldwide. But for us to be like Christ, He's just saying that you have, you have to hate your life, die to self. You know, He later would say, take up your cross and follow me. So our, our lives, like Christ, are produced fruit. His is to save sinners. Ours is to produce the fruit of Christ's likeness, a life of sacrifice. That's what chapter 13 is all about, this, this washing the disciples' feet. Now, I'll tell you something very interesting. And folks, this is something I don't think I've ever taught on this. But look at chapter, still in chapter 12, look at verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. That was beautifully portrayed in the little video. By the way, if you read it in the original language, it could say, I have been and continue to be disturbed or troubled. See, his, his struggle, his burden... Um, the grief and sorrow he felt just not, did not start sitting at the table with the disciples. He had had it and it had continued. So he had been bearing a burden for a while. He says, now is my soul troubled and, what, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come, into, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Maybe he's talking about the resurrection. I'm not sure. But I've glorified your name. I'll glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard, it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice uh, has Come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now look, look what he says now. I don't have all the answers for this one, but he says now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Okay. And now looking at eschatology, uh, we know there's a time and a point in time where Satan is completely cast out of any kind of access to the throne of grace. But that seems to happen during the tribulation. So, I'm going to tell you what I think when he says, now's the judgment, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I, I, he's talking about Satan has, has had the world in bondage, right? And he still does. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of the age. But that power can be thwarted by what? Now, the message of Christ. And so what Christ is fixing to do in His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is going gonna, is gonna, to you know, strip the devil or really the Bible says rape the devil from any kind of authority he has over our souls through the power of the gospel. I mean, that's what happens when somebody gets saved. God brings them out of darkness into light. And it, it's a marvelous miracle. It's a new birth. It's being born from above. It's all these things. And look what he says. Verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. 
And I, are you looking at your Bibles? And I, when I am lifted up. Folks, Old Testament history, that's, you know, that's the golden serpent when they complain, the serpents. And they, Moses put the, the snake on the rod and stood it up. And when they looked at it, they were saved. That's what that's a reference to. When I'm lifted up from the earth, look what he says, I will draw all people to myself. He's still in this same context. Because I'm going to the cross, people from all, not just Jews, they're going to hear the gospel first, but people from all over the world are going to be saved. And you know what started this whole context was when the Greeks, I mean, Jesus knew that was going to happen before that. The Greeks pursued wanting a conversation with him, which is just an illustration of that gospel going past the Jews. And so, but I want to look at the word draw. When I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, that's not saying, that's not universalism. That's not saying all of you are saved. Everybody in the world is saved. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is every ethnicity on the face of the earth, then and now, can be saved by hearing the gospel. Right? You agree? Because we know there's a difference between obedience, and we know people can reject the gospel. So we know it's not saving everybody. But He draws them. Now, for the sake of time, because I only have an hour, I want to, my wife loves it when I go over, she really does. Um, draw, this is an incredible word. Um, well, let me just tell you, in John's gospel, uh, well, since we're there, we, we, we can take a minute, go, go to John 18, go to John 18, I want to make sure I know what I'm talking about, John 18. Yeah, go to John 18. It says then, this is chapter 18, verse 10. It says, uh, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. Okay? That's the same Greek word of Christ drawing people. Go to John 21. John chapter 21. These two will really find application. These are great word pictures for the word draw. John 21, same word. Verse 6 says, He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. He's talking about hauling it in. He does the same thing, I think, in verse uh, 11, this fishing adventure. He says in verse 11, the 153 fish, but then he says, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. 
the word for pulling or hauling is the same word Jesus uses for drawing. Uh, some in the later epistles, it's the word in Acts, it's when Peter uh, and Peter and James, I'm sorry, yeah, Peter and James were dragged into court. It's the word for drag. All it's telling you is, is that salvation is a gift of God, not a work of man. This eliminates a man choosing God without God first calling him. Do you understand? He draws them unto salvation. You lift me up, you preach the cross, and I will draw people from every ethnicity, from all, I'll draw them to me. But I'm doing the drawing. I'm, I'm casting the net and I'm pulling the net. That's what I'm doing. You're just a part of that. You're fishers of men. But I'm the one that's putting the fish in place and bringing the fish in. That's me That when it comes to sovereign grace. So those are just interesting things about the context of chapter 13. Number one, clothed in... The, we did this for... I think we did this for two years. Now it's been a while. And I mean, I, I've forgotten a good portion of the outline. But number one, so I'm going to give you the outline. We won't make it through all of them, but I do want to give you the answers. Number one, we're clothed in humility. I mean, if you watch the video, that's where we're going to read in just a second. But, but Christ took off His outer garment. You saw it. And he put, on the, he put on the garments, the towel. He was a servant. What I'm saying is, you know, I mean, if you've studied the Bible long enough, the lowliest person in the household would do this. This was... Um, so when you came to a household, and, and you know the context... When people went from place to place, their feet would get dirty. And that he it's a symbol. So what would have to happen when you when you went into somebody's house to have a meal to gather at the table and sit around the table? Because you leaned at the table and your feet were near somebody. So you, you, a servant, the first thing that would happen would would be somebody would wash their feet. Now in the movie, it showed some women in, in the room. Okay, um, I, I don't know if that's true or not. But I know the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples that are real disciples. You, we talked about this years ago. You, you know as soon as Jesus got up, and they probably didn't realize what was happening until He picked and poured the water into the basin and, and then walked to them. That's when they realized what He's fixing to do. And you can imagine what's going through their minds. And probably they never forgot this. All the anxiety of thinking, I should be doing that, right? That's what you, right? To this day, I mean, in their minds, they'd be thinking, I should be the one doing that. All of them that's in the room, of anybody in here that's the highest and not the lowest, who is it? It's Christ. And he tells them, you know, if I'm your man, if I'm. Besides that, you think about that, that anxiety of thinking that, you know, I should be the one to do that. The other thing I'm thinking about is how dirty my feet are. Right? How big your toenails are. Everybody's going to pay attention because the Lord Jesus is taking your foot with all of its corns and long nails and dirt under and washes it. And you're thinking about how nasty you are. And now, let's, let me read John 13. We, we don't have time to go much longer, but let me read it. So, number one, clothed in humility. But let me read this first portion of John 13. 
Now before the feast of Passover, and this is Thursday, okay? Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. Folks, that's where we are, right? For 2,000 years, believers have got... When God saved you, He didn't zap you out of here. He saved you, and, the, and His decision for all saints, almost etern- for all of history, is when He saves you, where does He leave you? Exactly where you were. He leaves you in the world, okay? He was going to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. That's a word used when Jesus is on the cross. Interesting word. Um, that word means He couldn't have done any more. Uh, uttermost, I think, is some words. He loved Him to the uttermost. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from, he had come from God and he was going back to God. Now, folks, clothed in humility all of his life, even from the moment of con- conception in the womb of Mary, as, as God being planted, every part of his life was an act of humility. This, Him washing the disciples' feet, which was just about the lowliest act a human could do in in that part of the world, the culture. You know, it was even worse than being a shepherd. That's what, comparatively, that's Jesus' whole life. His whole life was a foot wash. He lowered Himself. He was with the Father, and He came to the world. This This whole illustration is a picture of His self-emptying. Now, that's not all it pictures, but it pictures Christ self-emptying. So He came from God. He was going back to God. So it says He rose from supper. And I can imagine, I think the movie did a great job of showing the despair and the confusion and uh, the angst and the minds and, and thoughts of, of the disciples. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter. Folks, this is a great lesson on salvation, okay? Uh, you'll notice, in, I, I ask in the t- sermon title, Do You Need to Be Washed? Okay. He came into Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you, do you wash my feet or you do not wash my feet? Jesus said to him, I mean, he's think, Peter says what everybody's thinking. There's no way you should be washing my feet. And so Jesus says, I'm, what I'm doing to you, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, 
If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And I think it's contextual, that, that moment. He, Peter is not going to experience what God want, Christ wants him to experience at that moment. You have no, you have no share with me. And so Peter says, Lord, you and I would do the same thing. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head. I mean, wash all of me, he says. And here's the lesson. The one who has bathed does not need to wash. Because he wants to be completely, he wants to give Jesus to give him a bath. I mean, symbolically, that's what he's asking. And Jesus saying, you know, if you've been washed, you don't need to be washed again. Your feet are dirty, so you need a foot washing. You need to be cleansed. Now, Jesus is not necessarily just talking about his feet in that basin and the water he's poured. That's he's. That's true, but we're, we're somewhere else now. We're, we're talking about eternal salvation now. Okay? We're talking about what happens when you and I respond to Christ as Lord and Savior. Look what he says. The one who has bathed, that's salvation. Been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right? Does not need to wash except his feet. They need, you need some cleansing. So folks... How many times can I be born again? How many times does it take? One. How many times do my feet need to be washed? Millions and millions and millions. So the salvation is being washed in the blood of the Lamb. But our whole life is spent in this world getting dirty. And the feet here are a representation of being cleansed. Just regular, moment by moment, day by day, Cleansing. And it's the cleansing that keeps the fellowship that you and I, we have a relationship with Him, but sometimes it's the fellowship that is distorted because of our sin. And so we need a cleansing. We need our feet washed, symbolically. By the way, this is not a command. Never, it's imperative. It's not imperative when... It says example. It's an example. Okay, uh, That's why we don't do it as an ordinance. Now, there are Baptist groups that do foot washing uh, as, a, as a regular ordinance, but we don't believe the text teaches that, but we move on. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And then he says, and you are clean. But then he says, hey, and folks, this is true this very morning. You're clean. But I can say, but not all of you. There's somebody in here that's never never been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So this is true today, right in this room. Most of you are clean. But what Jesus said is not all of you. I'm telling you, somebody in here doesn't know Jesus. We know that statistically. It has to be. Well, not only statistically, but how you live. I may, I may not see how you live, but there's somebody in this room knows how you're living. But the biggest deal is Christ knows that you're not His. The Bible says the, the Lord knows those that are His. 
And then he says, this is how I know they're mine. I know anyway, I'm sovereign. But then he says, let everybody who names my name abstain from sin. They try to live righteous like me. That's how I know they're mine. But I know anyway. Let's move on. You're clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now I'll finish with a couple of verses. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? And look what he says. You call me, some translations say Master and Lord. It is the word teacher, didaskaleia, didaskalos, teacher. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And look what he says, he reversed. If I then your curios, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now look at your handouts and I'll give you the answers. We, we're clothed in humility, that makes sense. So if we're going to be like Christ, we're going to be walking around with a wash basin and a towel. We're going to have the humble servant's heart. We're going to live our lives as a foot washer. Number two, we're conformed to His will, where He says, hey, if I'm your master and teacher and Lord, Lord now, and I've done this to you, This is how you're going to live. So, two is conformed to His will. Number three is we're comforted by His Word. We're going to pick up on that next Sunday. Number four, we're confronted by unbelief. You might even say betrayal. I put unbelief. Confronted by unbelief. You could even put hypocrisy. Betrayal, unbelief, hypocrisy, denial, whatever word you want to put. They're confronted by that. They don't know what to do. Is it I? Matthew says they started saying, they all realized they're all possible of betraying. And then the fifth one goes all the way to chapter 14 where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. They are very confused. We know that because what Peter does, you know, after the death and the resurrection, he goes fishing. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. When you read the book of Acts, they were confident in His coming. They really believed He would come again. So here's the five. Clothed in humility, conformed to His will, comforted by His word, conformed, Comforted by His Word, confronted by betrayal, and confident in His coming. And the last point is don't forget the study in Genesis tonight tonight at 6. Let's stand for prayer. Thank you so much for your presence. Let's pray. Father, we love You and thank You for Your grace and mercy and thank You for that example that that you have established that, uh, Lord, that that billboard, as the word might imply, this obvious 
billboard in our spiritual pilgrimage that if you, our master teacher and Lord, humbled himself even to the point of death as your children, uh, should we not have that same spiritual desire? And Lord, we believe it. It says, wherever I am, there my servant will be. So Lord Jesus, we, we want to be believers who are willing to wash one another's feet, to be servants. Lord, and even beyond being a servant, we want to be lowly servants. Father, thank you for, Lord, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that in Him was life. And that life is now the light of the world. God, help us to show forth His glory. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you tonight at 6, choir at 4.30. 4.30 and 6.